0: How's that? Okay, um, I wanna thank all of you for braving uh, Noah's flood. (laughs) I wonder if Noah complained about um, uh, climate change all those years ago. (laughs) Um, So we all made it here and I I really appreciate everybody coming. I also am especially um, happy to be here. The last time, oh, this is loud. Sorry. The last time I came here was in the old hall. And actually, I was glad I had a chance to experience that. Because my first teachings were um, with uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, the first teachings I ever had in any kind of meditation. And so I feel a special closeness to this lineage, even though I ended up in another end of Buddhism. but before we go any further, I, I wanted us all just to settle in and be quiet for a minute. And then in our tradition, whenever we begin um, something worthwhile, um, we remember our true intent, which can be lost in the everyday distraction of our smaller intents, but our larger intent, a meaningful life, which in some way or another is about being of benefit To others. So just as we um, turn into ourselves, we also feel our being connected at the root with everyone. So I wanted to ask you guys to raise your hands. How many people are fairly new at this thing, meditation? Mm -hmm. And how many have been at it for a little while? Mm -hmm. And how many people have been at it for a long while? Okay, well, it seems like yeah they' yeah, trying to yeah. How's that? Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine.. Yeah. Hello. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Um, so not everybody raised their hands, so I must have missed a couple of categories. but anyway, it's clear there's a range. Um, so I, as I said, I'm delighted to be here, and now to be in this beautiful new hall. And having been so welcomed by this community and um, I sort of thought to myself when I decided on the topic for tonight Vipassana Tibetan style (laughs) that I had a lot of nerve coming here to teach Vipassana (laughs) because this is kind of the birthplace of it in the West and um, you guys are real experts at it. It's one of the practices we do as well. Uh, and it's foundational throughout all of Buddhism. Um, and there are some very good reasons why. Uh, it's uh, known as hlaktong in Tibetan, which is difficult to translate, but I guess I would translate it as sublime seeing. So you've heard it as insight. So you can kind of get... Where it's, where it's going with the meaning. Uh, but the point is to penetrate um, with your seeing to the essence. And um, this is what we're gonna be doing tonight. And Ribiche gave me two basic pathways to do it, where you can use almost anything as, um, how can I say this, as a vehicle for that insight. So thoughts arising, um, the thinker, uh, anything, you can use as the road home. So there are actually countless roads home. And you get there again and again because we get distracted again and again every time you sit. So before going into uh, the more Tibetan style, I thought I would start... Uh, by doing sort of a Western-style version of this. Because that's where I started, and that's where a lot of us started, I think. I was really lucky in that my dad, uh, though he wasn't uh, spiritual at all, and he certainly wasn't Buddhist, um, he didn't think he was spiritual, but I sort of kind of disagree with it. He was a devout believer in science. And I think we all know a lot of Westerners who are devout believers in science. Well, as a matter of fact, the Dalai Lama is too. Uh, so there's a kind of a famous um, conversation between Carl Sagan and His Holiness. Uh, and Carl Sagan says, um, so you say you're a believer in science but, and, and the scientific method, but what if um, the scientific method ends up proving uh, one of the basic tenets of Buddhism to be wrong? And His his Holiness said, well, then I would have to accept it. I can't imitate his accent, so never mind about that. But anyway, um, so Sagan kind of pursued it a little bit and said, well, yeah, but what if it's really a basic tenet like, for example, reincarnation? And His Holiness said, well, then I would have to accept it. But you're going to have trouble disproving reincarnation. So they left it at that. So my dad um, had a kind of a strange idea about bedtime stories. And one bedtime story that he um, sort of had as a running theme for a few weeks was the theory of relativity. I'm not kidding you. Well, he also read Edgar Allan Poe po- poetry to me. So you know this, is, <laughs> this may explain a lot about me. <laughs> but anyway... Um, So he was fascinated by science and uh, engendered a love of it in me. Much later I read a book called The Holographic Universe, and in there um, I discovered the work of uh, David Bohm. Has anybody heard of David Bohm? Yeah, not too many. Well, he was uh, just a bit younger than Einstein, and actually they um, had a series of conversations. And um, I think that he, in some ways, took um, Einstein's theories and continued them. So at the time that he was um, busy working on uh, penetrating to the essence of reality, Western style. Um, scientists were uh, breaking down uh, molecules into atoms into subatomic particles and trying to understand what were these things? And um, so some scientists uh, said, well, actually, they're not particles at all. At this level, they're waves. And they set up experiments to prove that. And they succeeded in the experiments again and again. However... Other scientists didn't agree. They felt there were these subatomic particles and they were still particles. And so they set up experiments to see if, if those would work. And they proved that they acted like particles. And so uh, David Bohm uh, was saying, well, actually, it depends on what the scientists believed they, them to be. And they could set up experiments either way and succeed. So he became fascinated with what's behind this. And he felt that there was something um, organizing all of it that was at a sort of a meta level and that sometimes um, this, whatever it is, and by the way, the, the scientists at one point were calling them wavicles. I wish they still did. But anyway, <laughs> um, So these, whatever they were, sometimes uh, were flashing forth as really more like a wave and other times as a particle and they also, the scientists were finding you couldn't really pin down exactly where it was at any given moment. So he was really puzzled by all this and trying to understand what is, is there maybe a way in which we could sort of step back and have it all kind of organized and making sense? And then what appears to be somewhat random uh, as we're looking at it, you know, from the larger point of view is going to sort of hang together and make sense. So while he was um, pondering this, um, a solution came from a direction that. Uh, many of us wish we could get our solutions from, the TV. Really, he was, well, he was watching BBC, so. Um, So what was happening on BBC that day was they had um, a glass cylinder um, that was filled with glycerin. So, you know, glycerin is kind of, it's very thick. Um, And they dropped one drop of ink in it, and there was this crank and they were turning the crank and so the ink began to spread out and spread out more and more and more until it was just the glycerin and you know it was barely tinted and i suppose under a microscope you would just see lots of little random flecks of ink so the interesting thing was that when they turned the crank the other way the ink Went in reverse and came back into one blob. So it, it, that just, you know, sort of was like a light bulb in his head, and he thought, ah, so it's like everything unfolds and then enfolds. So he was starting to call it the um, enfolded, unfolded universe. And uh, so it's like an electron um, appears because it's kind of like a geyser that, you know, pops up above the ground and then goes back down.
1: <clears throat>
0: and that this just happened like many, many, many times a second. Well, this starts to get really interesting because then when I was sitting with Tukusang Akribache, who is my teacher, he was uh, starting to talk about the nature of reality. And um, he was talking about, um, well at one point he was talking about the dying process and the Tibetans have delineated that very, very precisely. When does this break down? When does that break down? The different elements and so on and so forth and what happens to consciousness as it leaves the body. And um, then it goes into the bardo, and then it reincarnates again. So this is kind of enfolding, unfolding, right? Well, then he, sa- he sort of finished it up and tossed out this line. He said, um, and so that also happens many times every second. Hmm. So that, uh, that there blew my mind. <laughs> Um, so then it's like frames of a movie, right? So, you know, the, the scene appears and then it's black in between, and then it appears and it's black in between, appears and black in between. Have you ever seen those, like, little comic book things where you uh, flip the pages really fast, uh, the corner of the pages, and you can see somebody, like, moving at, because your eye just puts that movement together into one um, graceful, wave or you know, whatever mo- movement it is, we don't see the spaces in between. Um, and so we're, um, we're filling in some gap there, right? Maybe we're filling in a lot of gaps. And the understanding is that we're filling in um, with layers and layers of our own habits of mind. I won't get into where all that comes from, but just on the level of perception, I'd like you to sort of see if you can sort of imagine letting go just a little bit to imagine for a moment. If you could see each frame and then the space in between, you know, if you could sort of pull back the veil, if you will, and really see to the essence, that's Vipassana. (coughs) <coughs> That's my understanding of Vipassana. So uh, Rinpoche believed that uh, Vipassana and shamatha, uh were best used together in meditation. Shamatha, for those of you who may not have you know, such an exact um, definition of it, um, it means peaceful resting, peaceful abiding, that kind of thing. And uh, so what you're doing is you're resting your mind on one thing. And at first, uh, the t- typical thing is with your breath. You rest your mind on your breath, which is handy because we always have it with us. Um, and there are actually other reasons why it's very useful. It's also a way to turn your lens inward because, of course, you know, the breath is happening inside of us. Um, but you don't only have to use breath. You can use sound. Just... Allowing the sounds that whatever they are coming and going, uh, being aware of them. And so there's sort of this stream of breath or uh, sound, or you can also use visuals. Uh, We have a nice one here. Um, We can use um, thoughts as well. So there's a stream of thoughts. And actually that's okay. Our brain is a thinking machine and that's okay. Um... So the way I like to imagine it is when I'm doing shamatha on thoughts, let's say, or emotions, you can do it on emotions, it's like a rope is uh, passing across your hand, and your hand just remains open. Your hand can perceive, you know, it registers the feeling of that, but it doesn't grab it, so then you don't get pulled off your seat. So unlike uh, one of the persistent myths for us Westerners, which says that you have to stop your thoughts, you don't have to stop your thoughts. Rinpoche was really clear emphasizing that, and I still like, couldn't get it for a long time. It's okay to have the thoughts. Just allow them to pass through and be aware of them. So he described it as being like um, an old man watching children playing. He can just let them play. They do whatever they do. They have their dramas and so on. He doesn't have to get down in the dirt and you know get in there with them. He's just watching. So that's essentially shamata. That was a really quick lesson in shamata. It's <laughs> not the whole thing, but you know, kind of the essence of it. So when a, when we do discover that we've been following a thought, <clears throat> Rinpoché would tell me you can do one of two things. You can either look at the thought, penetrate to the essence of it, or you can turn the lens and look at the thinker and penetrate to the essence of that. So I I didn't really know what he meant for a long time, um, which is why they call it practice. Practice. So I did a lot of it and you know, found some ways that uh, really worked well for me. And of course he, he did uh, give me a few more clues about that. Um, so I think the best now is if we practice right now. So I'm gonna walk you through this sort of going back and forth between shamatha and Vipassana. Um, so when you experience that thought um, hmm. Yeah, we're just going to do a quick one. When you experience the following after that thought, um, try, for now, looking directly at the thought. You know, what is that? the essence of that thought? And whenever you penetrate to the essence of whatever it is, or it just vanishes... Uh, because now, you know, you caught it in action. Um, You just go back to shamatha. And so there you are, home again, resting. So it's just that uh, back and forth again and again. So we'll just do a little bit of it quickly, just to try this a little bit. So just sitting with your back straight and yet relaxed. And if you want to try uh, Tibetan style, your mouth is just a little bit open and you're breathing through your mouth. And the eyes are down. And you might just focus on your breathing, not with the label so much as directly experiencing the movement, the coolness on your tongue or in your nose, whatever you experience as you breathe. And whenever you notice that you've been lost in a train of thought, look at that thought directly. What is the essence? And then you rest in shamatha again. So I don't know how that was for you, that little experiment. Um, And maybe for some of you that wasn't an experiment at all. Um, But I'm going to explain something that Rinpoche uh, helped me with that made a huge difference for me in that little exercise. So what he did was he um, broke it down for us. So let's take something... um, specific, like a mountain. So it's dark outside, but we know there are mountains out there. (laughs) And if we try to understand exactly what is the essence of mountain there, this actually starts to get a little tricky when we zoom in on it. Because is it the trees? Hmm. Is it the grass? Is it the, desert, the dirt? And if it's the dirt, then which part of the dirt? And is it the rock? If we say it's rock, then you know, we can zoom in even further, and that's actually a bunch of molecules and atoms, right? And he talked in those terms. So, But then if we keep going then we know that that goes into subatomic particles, wavicles, something like that. Well, at that point, what is this mountain thing that we're talking about? And at that level, what is the difference between whatever we decided was essence of mountain and how do we decide that? Um, And the surrounding air, let's say, which is also atoms, molecules, wavicles. So this is the way Rinpoche talked. I got so excited. I said, guess what? In the last like couple of decades, the scientists have been saying the same thing. And he looked at me, unimpressed. It, the Buddha was talking about this two and a half millennia ago. He was not impressed. So... Um, you can do this with anything. Remember, I was talking about all these different paths to get to the same place. I mean, you can do it with a flower. You can do it with the table. You know, what makes this table? Uh, so we can break it down level by level by level. We can say, well, it's the, the wood on the top, but what that what is that composed of? And again, zooming in and zooming in until uh, there's no distinguishable table anymore. And now we're back home in Shamata, in what he referred to as like this great big ocean that um, keeps th- uh, throwing waves, you know, all these different waves, just millions and millions of waves, and each one is unique. And they go down, and they go up. They go down, and they go up. Begins to sound familiar, doesn't it? And so um, the thinker is, of course, also a wave. We're going to have the same challenge looking at the thinker, but there's another way to look at that that we'll talk about after the break. Uh, So now, what I'd like you to do is try again with this little experiment and just play with it. Again, starting in shamatha and then I guarantee you'll have an opportunity to um, look at the essence of a thought. And now you've just had this little instruction from Rinpoche through me to you, and play with it. It's worth playing with a lot, actually. So just a few minutes of this again. Beginning with your focus on your breath. And whenever you've found yourself following a train of thought, turn that lens and look at the essence of the thought and see what happens. You might start to get like a mouse, at like a cat at a mouse hole waiting for a thought. You can relax, there'll be one. And once you've sort of caught that thought in action and that wave sort of goes back into the ocean, you just come back to focusing on your breath. You come back home. And when that thought wave goes back down into the ocean, you can go there with it and just feel that quality, that presence of that ocean. What's it like? I'd like you to reflect for a moment. What did you just experience? How does your own experience relate to um, what we've discussed about David Bohm's work? This idea of the Enfolding, unfolding universe. Ocean and waves. And I'm going to add one more piece. Um, He talked of um, the universe being a hologram. And that each being, each thing even down to each electron, was a hologram of the whole. I don't know if you know what this is. Um, I was very lucky, uh, because my dad was so interested in science, he took me to a laboratory for my 13th birthday. Again, this may explain a lot about me, but it was actually really interesting. They were just experimenting with uh, holographic photography, And so the scientists proudly showed me um, a holographic picture. And they said, this is 3D. And um, there are some amazing, amazing qualities about it. Well, I looked at it, and it just looked like a bunch of waves. It didn't look like anything. Uh, It looked like uh, somebody had thrown a bunch of little pebbles in a pond, and there were all these circular waves, and they were crossing each other. Uh, but then they uh, shine um, a laser light through it, and I could see, oh, it's a picture. It's a picture of you're, you're looking through a window, and there's uh, a chessboard with chess pieces. And they said, yes, now move your head, and I could see another part of the chessboard, and then another part as I move my head this way. Well, if you tear a piece of the paper off, you can do the same thing and see the whole scene. That's a hologram. And so each of us is a hologram. And again, each little tiny fleck in this whole universe is a hologram, according to David Bohm. So as we're doing these little experiments, um, that's just something you might keep in the back of your mind. And we'll be experimenting a little more. But right now, I'd like you to compare notes. So... What did you just experience? How does this relate to Bohm's work, the ink, the hollow movement, all that sort of thing? And um, ocean and waves, you know, see what comes to mind. I'd like you to break into pairs and just talk to each other and compare notes. Just for a couple minutes. You wanna join them? And now would be a good time to switch talkers if you haven't already. come back together from the many waves to the one ocean I'm wondering if anybody would care to share questions, what they experienced, anything yeah I think uh, there are mics oh, there are mics set up Well, there's a couple of people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, thank you. Um, I uh, was very interested in what you, your, your description of David Bohm and the idea of the wave and particle theory. Is something I know, you know, thought a little bit about. So I, I wasn't even intending to, but I, I found myself th- thinking about the. Letting, instead of taking my, letting my thoughts go, and I was going into what's Copenhagen the theorem about quantum mechanics, which is, as you're probably aware, is that, essentially, not only whether they're a wave or a particle, but even where they are doesn't exist until you observe it. And the observer actually affects that. It they, is indeterminate. And I just sort of let myself go into thinking about that. And things begin to think kind of dissolve, essentially. Which is certainly not what I expected, <laughs> because I'm used to meditation when you go off on thoughts constantly going, "Oh, I'm thinking," and coming back to the breathing. Mm-hmm. And so it was an interesting experience. I didn't, I didn't reach any great conclusions about this since I don't know enough about it. But it was, I was following the particles out there in the uh, the great quantum world. So,
0: yeah. well, I'll give you maybe something that uh, speaks to me from what Rinpoche has said about this which is if you practice and practice shamatha and keep just saying, whoops, I was thinking, and go back, um, it's like, in a sense, mowing the lawn. (laughs) You know, the grass keeps growing. That's kind of a, you know, (laughs) we all know (laughs) what kind of a futile exercise that is. Um, Unless there's drought, then you might get lucky. But then it rains again, and up comes the grass. But when you penetrate to the essence of the thoughts, then you're pulling it up by the roots. So I think that's what you experienced and that is the purpose of vipassana with shamatha. And now I think there was a fellow in the back who had a question. Uh, on this side.
2: You? I, I, I didn't have a question. I was just gonna oh. make a comment that uh, the exercise was kind of relaxing to um, not necessarily try and break down what is very complex, but to accept what is gave me a little peace of mind, and it actually helped me um, just be about the breath and the joy of having the breath, mm. and um, it was very it was very comfortable. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. Thanks. Wonderful. Yeah. So I think many of you have heard of Dr. Richard Davidson, who's done a lot of work in neuroscience. And um, one of his sort of bottom line statements is, a a distracted mind is an unhappy mind. So when you're just with what is, you might just be happier, (laughs) rather than worrying about the future or... Uh, mulling over the past or reaching for this thing you want or pushing away the thing you don't want. Just be in here. So I think you had something you wanted to say or ask? Oh, you're just a mic person. Got it. Got it. Yeah? Did you want to?
3: So I thought this was a very great lesson. I mean, you are a teacher of mine, but for me, what happened was the thought that I had was like, why haven't I been invited to this place to do this thing? And then I was like, what's beneath that? And so you, normally I would stay in the story a lot longer, but the trigger to go, what's beneath that? And I was like, well, longing, maybe jealousy. And then I was like, what's beneath that? I asked the question again, like, oh, because I wanted to offer kindness or do something. And then I could come back immediately back to shamanism, to my breath, to peace. Hmm. Right? Because I had kind of gone through it. Whereas before, I would have stayed in that story and then be like, oh, get back to your breath. Right? Like, right. And I couldn't have found the root to actually be like, now I actually am back in my body because I could see through these different layers uh, to find a truth that I could sit with that I was at peace with, that was truly peace and not just like, hey, you know, get rid of your chatter, come back to your breath. Yeah. So it was really good for me.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of a million, a billion paths home. <laughs> what I was struck by when you were talking was then that was sort of a, you went through a path of emotions and layers of one emotion beneath another, and what you got to was your true motivation, which was actually altruistic, as it turns out. It's, you know, might be that it's good news when we get down to it. It just might be. <laughs> Well, it's already break time. And what we'll do when we come back is uh, I'll take you through an exercise um, where we'll turn the lens now on the thinker. This is gonna be quite different and go pretty deep. I mean, you kind of ended up doing that, but (laughs) you know, with your motivations. Uh, But this is actually looking at the essence of what the heck is this thing we're calling the thinker? So I will see you in 15 minutes. I promised if you stayed tuned, I was going to give you another tool, and this is going to be turning the lens on the thinker. And my favorite way to do this um, is really rather different from what we did before the break. It's what I kind of informally call the what's left practice. So if you want to get down to the essence of something, that might be a way to do it. And it's quite a profound practice, and I did it pretty much on a daily basis for a couple of years early in my training. And I still like to do it from time to time. So it's actually rehearsing dying. So you can imagine that one thing after another falls away. And then the question is, what's left? And if you do it too quickly, you'll miss a lot. So I suggest taking your time with it. So let's get comfortable. Settle in. And allow yourself to imagine for a bit. This is very different, of course, from your typical shamatha practice, and perhaps from other vipassana you've done. But please take a little bit of time, if you feel a little courageous, and imagine this dying process. And if you don't feel so courageous, that's okay. You don't have to do that today. So you can just do shamatha if you want. And you can do what we did before the break if you want. But uh, for some of you, perhaps most of you, um, you might want to come along. And for this, you might want to close your eyes. So let's begin with one thing that falls away, being able to walk around. So the walking falls away. Now what's left? So that means going to the bathroom goes away. And then, movement, moving the body, is falling away. And then, as we let go of this life, things like music lessons, gone. a foreign language we might have learned. Gone. What's left? So many of the experiences that we wove into this personality, they're falling away. You might think of specific one after another. The challenging experiences The happy ones, the parents you had in this life, the personality that came from all of these things falling away. What's left? speaking English, falling away, being American, or whatever your nationality, falls away, your name falls away, what's left? Well, you might say, my awareness. Well, there's still this awareness, but what's this my? Where is the boundary around the awareness? As you leave your body... And leave this life. If there's no container for the awareness and there's no boundary around it, what's left? Perhaps we could say boundless awareness. So without boundary, without form, what is this vast, boundless awareness, this ocean? What does it feel like? What do I feel like as this? Perhaps there are qualities such as vast and aware. perhaps peaceful, loving. Perhaps there's a quality of joy all potency. Being connected to everything, therefore, knowing everything. Ready to appear as anything again, pure potency. So we rest in this, savoring it for a bit. And if you discover you've been following a train of thought, you can find your way back home by doing this process again, letting the layers fall away.
1: What's left?
0: And again, settling, savoring. Again and again, you can look at the thought or the thinker and trace the thread home. You can use those things as your path home. If you use the thought and look directly at that, do you notice how when it's unmasked, it sort of pops? It can't even hold together. And again, you can always come back to watching your breath. Or depending on your personal practice, resting in that ocean of awareness. Every thought is a path home. Every sound. And of course, the thinker. When you focus your sublime seeing on the thinker, again take your time and be specific. See specific things falling away as you pursue what's left. And when you found your way home, remember to savor, settle in. It may not be for long, but you can come back again and again and feel the bodhicitta awakened heart, mind. And so if there's no boundary around this eye and all of these eyes in this room, then that can explain this feeling right here, right now. So once again, I'd like you all just to reflect for a moment. If you want to, you could even jot down a note or two. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. How are you feeling right now? Just notice the quality of feeling, a few adjectives. You might have gone through a series of feelings. What did you experience? Just to stop and reflect for a moment. It's almost like it didn't happen unless you have the chance to reflect for a moment. Oh, I experienced this, and then this, and maybe this. This is what it was like. And then you learn something. And I have one more question. How does this relate to what Bohm, David Bohm, saw? Or some of the other things we experienced tonight? So you really wanna take note of this because you're gonna have to say it to somebody We're going to go into pairs again. So you might choose the same person, if that's easy, or maybe somebody else nearby. And spend a few minutes comparing notes. So again, how do you feel? What did you experience? How does this relate with Bohm's work? It's okay to be in groups of three as well. So let's come back together. Bring of the many waves to the ocean together. (sighs) So I'm curious to hear, what did you guys experience? And what are your questions?
2: Thank you for listening.